0: and welcome to another episode of My Naked Mindset. I'm your host, Janae Ledger. This is episode number 61. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you guys have been enjoying the mental health and friendships and all of the episodes I have released recently. I've been working really hard on kind of giving you guys what you want. Definitely, you know, get ready to listen to some Real, raw, vulnerable, knowledgeable, special guests um, that just know their shit because that's what my naked mindset is all about a judgment free mind zone. So be sure to tune in to, um, you know, this episode, of course, and then I'm also gonna have some intimacy topics coming up. So definitely get ready for those. I know you guys have been enjoying these you know mindset mental health episodes but I obviously like to give you what you guys want and I know that you love the intimacy topic so we will definitely do some more of those so I do have some recs today cuz I feel like I haven't given out some recs in like a hot minute so this might be like old news cuz this is coming out in the end of Ju- uh, June but the ultimatum craziest show on Netflix Please watch it and let me know what you think at the end, because it blew my mind. I think I talked about it a couple episodes ago, but it's just the most insane concept that you would go on the show with your partner and give them, an, you had given them an ultimatum of like, oh hey, like I want to get married, and that person wasn't ready, and they had been together for a while, so they get to date other people, and, and they can either go with the new person, or they can... Go with their, you know, start continue dating the person that they're with, aka get engaged. Crazy show. The Circle, one of my favorites, just came back with season four. I am loving it so far. I'm only a couple episodes in, but that show is so interesting. It's like a social media concept show. You can be yourself or you can be someone else and you make like a profile and you basically talk to the other people on the show. And you have to assign people kind of like a hierarchy almost and like rate them. Um, and so like the people that got one, one and two are called influencers. And then you can vote people off and then new people come in. But there's like twists and turns. So I highly recommend that show. And then of course, there's always the beautiful Selling Sunset show, which is you know, a realtor show brokerage that sells million dollar homes, but also the fashion on that show is unbelievable. It's super entertaining, lots of drama. So if you're kind of into that type of show, definitely, definitely recommend. So those are my recs. But without further ado, I have an amazing guest today. I can't wait for you guys to listen to our conversation. So here is the episode. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. I have a very special guest. She is a clinical psychology intern at Harvard Medical School, and she specializes in OCD and anxiety-related disorders. Everyone, please welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I know. I'm so excited to have you here today and just to really like debunk all, all these sorts of misconceptions about OCD and anxiety and really just like pick your brain on these topics. Cause like me, I know a lot of my friends are super intrigued about just learning more about OCD and anxiety. And obviously this is like your specialty. So I first want to ask like how you kind of got into this and, and kind of how, you know, your journey began. Yeah,
1: that's, It's a really interesting question because I reflect back on my whole trajectory within clinical psychology. So um, I completed a PhD program in clinical psychology, which is six years plus internship, which is um, the equivalent of residency. And so Mm -hmm. I had a lot of time to get exposed to a lot of different disorders, a lot of different situations, a lot of different populations, and have worked pretty heavily with Depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, OCD, you know, kind of the whole gamut. Um, and I think one thing that kept bringing me back to OCD and anxiety related disorders is that they seem to creep up, especially the anxiety seems to creep up within so many other disorders, mm. right? People who are depressed often have a pretty strong anxiety component. People who have experienced trauma. Uh experience a lot of symptoms that really resonate with people with anxiety. And the really cool thing about anxiety and OCD is the treatment is highly effective, right? It's highly effective and it is really, really tangible. You know, if you have someone coming into your office saying that they um, have specific OCD tendencies and we, write them down, make a list of the different tendencies, the things that are interfering with their lives. And we tackle them one by one. There's nothing more rewarding for both me and for my clients than looking at that list two, three months later and having the person be in disbelief that, that these were even things that they couldn't do before. And so there's something really, really rewarding um, about OCD and anxiety that, that kept bringing me back to them.
0: That's super awesome. Awesome um i i love that and i love like when people are just so passionate about what they do and like they love helping people like that just when you talk about it it's just like i feel like people that are that into what they're doing you can tell like you can read it on their face like you can read it on their body language like it's just it's infectious and i think it's so empowering when people are just super into what they're doing right cuz like that's what we need in this world those people who are like you know, this is what I do and I love it. And I think a lot of, you know, the world is not happy with what they do every single day. And it's so nice to hear you like, so into it. So I love that. Um, so let's get into a little bit about like OCD. I think we could start with OCD and kind of just get into it. I did a little bit of research on my end. Um, so I learned that there's four types of OCD. Is that correct?
1: Um, so can you specify what the four types are to make sure that I'm keying into the same thing that you're thinking of?
0: Totally. So I read that there's cleaning, contamination, order, symmetry, counting, and then harm, OCD, and hoarding. Does that?
1: That's interesting. So those are very common things. Um, Hoarding these days is technically its own disorder. So it's an OCD-related disorder in the same way that body dysmorphia is or that trichotillomania, which is hair-pulling, is in which the treatment is pretty much the same as OCD, but it's its own disorder. Um, so I would say that that covers the most common categories. And the big differentiation that I would make too is that there is the obsessive type and the compulsive type and the combined type. That some people will come in and say to me, well, I don't think I have OCD because what I have is just really intrusive thoughts. And I don't act on the thoughts, but I have really intrusive thoughts that keep me up at night that prevent me from doing things. And that in itself can be a symptom of OCD. So, yes, there's, you know, within the cleaning part, there are the ritualistic behaviors of having to clean all the time. But then there's also some people who just constantly have that fear about contamination even if they're not doing the rituals. Of cleaning does that make
0: sense yeah, yeah that totally does make sense so let's talk about some like of the like you were saying ritual so meaning like it's a repetition they constantly do x y and z over and over again correct yes
1: um so you know i think the stereotypical types are the people who wash their hands so much that their hands become bloody or people who need to have things in a particular order and believe that if they don't have something happen in a particular order, something wrong is going to happen. You know, So there are some people that feel like they need to skip every third step. And if they don't skip every third step, someone in their family might get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of rituals also can be associated with religious rituals. So mm-hmm. people who are particularly... Religious, and especially from particular cultures who have OCD, will often have rituals tied to their religious affiliation. Um, It's not always super real uh, ritualistic, though, in terms of repeated patterns. You know, for example, um, I'm just pulling from examples of people I've seen since I first saw my first therapy client in 2016 of... Uh, A kid who had OCD centered around the idea of getting ticks and poison ivy and stopped eating at restaurants that served beef because she was afraid that the cow could have had a tick and by cooking something on the same stovetop that she could get a tick Um, or stopped using a bathroom that a friend's mom who had once had poison ivy used. You know, so those aren't necessarily repeated behaviors. They're avoidant behaviors. Mm. Um, Another good example of avoidant behaviors is is, um, someone I've seen, and it's actually a pretty common presentation, um, who had obsessive thoughts about the idea of hurting someone. And by that, I mean, he was not a violent person. You know, this is what you refer to when you say harm OCD. He was not a violent person. He was a sweet, sweet, sweet soul and had never had any history of violence or any violent thoughts, but became convinced That he was going to end up hurting someone. So, when he was driving to Trader Joe's, he would have to turn his car around and drive backwards to see if he had run someone over. If he was walking on the sidewalk and someone was walking in the opposite direction toward him, he would cross the street so that he wasn't walking by that person. And so, again, these are, I mean, they become somewhat ritualistic because he started doing them again and again, but it was less about the superstition of something bad is going to happen and more about the obsessive thought that I need to prevent something from happening. So like I said, the
0: avoidance. Very interesting. Now, when someone has these type of rituals or, you know, thoughts, how, I guess, how do you start by, you know, talking with them and and do you kind of like break down how they're feeling and like, what, why they think that something like that is going to happen? Where do you, I guess, kind of start when you do your work? I'm just curious.
1: That's a great question. And I should disclose that I am very much of cognitive behavioral training. So there are many different types of therapy and orientations, and I'm very much a cognitive behavioral person, which uh, in a nutshell means that my school of thought is that you can't necessarily Change someone's thoughts without also interfering with their behaviors, and you can't just change someone's behaviors without also changing the thought set. That the thoughts, the feelings, and the emotions all go together mm-hmm. and co-occur, and that you can't just target one of them. So, um, you know, it's it would be great if, in an ideal world, you could sit down and talk to someone and say, "So, how did you become?" so obsessed with this idea of hurting someone else. But the truth oh, is that it's tough. usually they don't know, right? It feels to someone as it came out of nowhere or something that slowly emerged and at first it seemed weird and then months later seemed like a real problem. Um, and so, you know, as with many things, if we had the answer, it would be a lot easier. Totally. Um, and often you can't really get behind the answer in my opinion, at least, you can't get behind the answer of how this started until you actually start interfering with the behaviors. Mm. So, um a very common thing, and this is something that you'll see with social anxiety, with phobias, you know, with a lot of different things is creating something called a fear hierarchy, which is basically sitting down with a client with someone who's struggling and making a list of All the different things that they're avoiding, all the different things that they feel compelled to do, situations that scare them, whatever it may be that fits their presentation. And um, we use something called the SUDS, which is the subjective unit of distress scale, which you can either do on a scale from 1 to 100 or I do 1 to 10 just out of simplicity and have the, the person rank from 1 to 10 how scary each situation is. Interesting. And slowly go through it with them. And this is not in one day or one week, you know, sometimes even in a month and have them tackle each of the situations. Hmm. And it's not necessarily going in order, right? You might not even start with the easiest one. You might start with the second easiest or the third easiest. And part of what the goal is, is to help them realize that anxiety does not mean danger.
0: Hmm.
1: So that Yes, it might feel really scary in that moment, not to turn around the car and see if you ran someone over, but that doesn't actually mean that you did something. Right. Right. And it's, you know, this whole idea of a fear hierarchy comes within a type of cognitive behavioral therapy called exposure and response prevention, which is that you are exposing someone to the thing that is creating the distress for them. And then the response prevention is that they then can't go and do something to alleviate the stress. So you take someone who has contamination OCD and they can't open a public door without a paper towel. Yep. Um you might start by having them just touch a doorknob, mm-hmm. not let them wash their hands for the next 2 hours or, you know, the remainder of the 40-minute session, and then you might have them stand and hold the doorknob for 10 minutes. Mm. And they still can't go wash their hands. And they're not washing their hands after is a really important part because it's showing that their inclination of what to do to feel safe, to feel secure, is not necessary in order for them to be safe and secure.
0: Interesting. Wow. That is so, I'm so intrigued right now. Just hearing those stories, it's like, wow. And it makes sense, like what you're doing. It's like, you're kind of almost like desensitizing them to it. It is, yeah desensitizing and so when you know someone has like a very obsessive behavior what are like some tips to you know obviously I think therapy is a huge factor and and work um but what are other ways to alleviate some of you know either obsessive thoughts or intrusive thoughts
1: that's a great question and I think there are a couple big things um You know, I think with anxious thoughts generally, I Mm. really like to differentiate with my clients between the question of what is probable versus what is possible. When we're feeling anxiety, we might be feeling anxiety about something with some possibility, but not a high probability. Mm. Yet when we're feeling anxious, our brain tells us that it's very probable. Right. And so the idea that you could touch this doorknob and get some deadly disease Sure, I'm not going to say there's a 0% chance of that happening, but it's not probable. And creating that differentiation is really important for people so that they're not thinking that any anxiety means something is highly probable. Um, You know, we, I remember this analogy I learned in grad school, which is that, you know, speaks to the idea that we don't want to get rid of anxiety altogether because anxiety is important. Anxiety is information. Anxiety is what what tells us to run across the street when we're walking and a car is coming, right? It's it's necessary. Um, And anxiety in a way is like a fire alarm to our body and our brain. But when the fire alarm is going off, anytime you cook popcorn in the microwave, the fire alarm is not doing its job. It's just sending out all of these faulty alarms, mm. right? And so we want to help make it so that the alarm is only going off when there's real danger, when there's a real fire, mm. rather than just when there's a little bit of burnt popcorn. You know, the other thing that I think is really important for people is it's to learn how to name and recognize the obsessive thoughts or the compulsions or the anxious thoughts. and it sounds so simple, but the simple act of saying to yourself, when you're feeling this, these are just my obsessive thoughts speaking to me. It's mm. really important because when you can name them, you can then put them into a category that doesn't conflate those obsessive thoughts with how you're feeling the rest of the time. You know, it's it's funny because I've done quite a bit of work with kids and I often joke to myself that the language we use with kids is actually really helpful for Mm -hmm. adults. And we just don't say it because it sounds really silly. But with kids, you often talk about the anxiety monster that's living Mm -hmm. inside of someone. And the goal is to help the kid not see the anxiety monster as its own character, but rather as a part of them that they can control. You know, when we're feeling anxious, when we're having obsessive thoughts, it feels out of our control. And we look at it as a separate character, either in our body, in the room, in our head. And the more people can learn to reorient their thinking to say that this is not a separate entity. This is part of me. And because it's part of me, I do have the power to control it. That can be really helpful. Now, that's obviously easier said than done. (laughs) Right. But I I think it's important to be working toward that mindset in which it's not its own being but it's a part of you and that you have some power over it rather than it has power over you.
0: I love that. That is such good insight. Um, so I know that I briefly discussed this when we kind of first started recording and I had a question about like some people have, you know, overly obsessive like things that they do like I for instance I always wash my hands before meals meaning like every single time I am about to touch food I will go wash my hands even if it inconveniences me to like you know leave the room and go to you know like at a restaurant go to the bathroom even if I'm in the middle of a conversation or what what have you and I kind of asked you before we started recording because I was curious like would that be an obsessive like tendency or am I just being, you know, clean and cleanly and, and really aware of that. And so I kind of just want to like debunk that. Cause I think a lot of yeah. people probably think the same thing about certain things that they do every single day.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, to repeat a little bit of what we were talking about, I think that there's this big stereotype of what OCD is. OCD is someone who needs everything in the room to be very organized or someone who washes their hands all the time because they don't want germs. Mm -hmm. You know, when you said to me that you wash your hand before meals, my instinct was you're being sanitary, right? Right. That's that's What everyone should do. And most people don't because it's inconvenient, but that's what any doctor would tell you you should do.
0: (laughs) Totally. You know,
1: and I don't hear you saying that you will be at a restaurant and decide that that bathroom isn't clean enough and you'll have to go down the street to find a cleaner bathroom so you can wash your hands to have the meal, right? That would be a different conversation that we're having, Um, you know, and I often explain the differentiation as are these tendencies getting in the way of your daily life? Um, Are they, you know, for a lot of people, they are late to appointments or class or work or dates because they're uh, engaging in a ritualistic behavior. Mm-hmm. They feel themselves staying up really, really late at night because they're having obsessive thoughts going through their head and feels tired the whole next day. It's interfering with their relationships or their everyday functioning. And so, you know, that's not to say that someone can't want to get rid of a habit if they feel like the habit is annoying them. It's Mm -hmm. really only when it becomes intrusive and when it's actively interfering with their normal functioning, that it becomes a problem, so to speak. Gotcha. Or a diagnosable problem, I should say.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I think that's a good, that's a good way to put it and kind of understand it more because it can be a little like complex, really. It, It sounds like it is very complex and it is super interesting just to hear like, you know, it's okay to, it's okay what I'm doing and probably other people like that's okay to do those things. But as long as it's not taking over, like you were saying your daily habits and your daily routines, as long as it's not really controlling your life, then I think it's probably not an OCD. Is that fair to say? Yes. Gotcha. Now, what would you say is like, um, I know there's probably like medications and therapy. Um, Is there anything else like that you would recommend, like a mindset of just like, okay, I'm overly thinking, maybe even it's intrusive thoughts. Like my mind just won't calm down. Um, What are your like tips that you usually tell your um, clients?
1: So it's interesting because this one of my first instinct of what to share is something that is actually part of CBTI, which is CBT for insomnia. And I know we're not here to talk about insomnia, um, but it's something that I now suggest to a lot of people who have anxious thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it is the idea of a designated worry time in your day. Now, again, I know it sounds like I'm talking to a kid, and you know, this is playtime, and this is snack time, and this is worry time but a designated worry time means having 10 to 15 minutes set aside each day ideally at the same time every day in which you were allowed to think about the things that are making you anxious Hmm. and so if an anxious thought comes up before then you say this is an anxious thought i'm going to put it in the notes section of my phone and i'll address it during worry time interesting and what often happens is then when you get to worry time Those things that were making you anxious earlier on no longer are making you anxious or you can think about them, right? Right. And then process them and it's done. And having this designated time, even though, again, I know it sounds so silly, helps people compartmentalize the anxious thoughts. You know, the reason that it was originally created as part of insomnia treatment was because often people who have sleep difficulties Mm -hmm. have it because they have racing thoughts at night. Right. Right. And so the thought process behind it was, well, if we can have them experience those racing thoughts before they're trying to sleep, then it won't interfere with their sleep. But I think that even if it's not disturbing someone's sleep, having a designated time is really important. Um, I like that. You know, I think other things, too. And obviously, I'm a huge advocate for therapy because that's what I do for a profession. You know, I think other things are having a plan ahead of time for how you're going to deal with anxious thoughts. You know, before the podcast, you and I talked a little bit about panic attacks Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: the number one thing that really can be helpful to people is having a plan for what they're going to do when they're having the panic attack. Because when we're feeling panic, when we're feeling scared, when we're feeling anxious, we're not in the most rational mindset. Right. And so we can't think of a good game plan for how to handle it. So if we have something prescribed to ourselves and I don't mean like a prescription for medication, but a plan prescribed to ourselves ahead of time that makes tackling it and thinking of something much, much more accessible. Um, And then I think the last thing, and I've touched on this earlier is being able to identify this is my anxiety speaking. Yes. Um, You know, I I think that's just, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think it's so important in order to be able to recognize it. And it can be really empowering. Um, I can keep going with with suggestions. One more, I will say, um, you know, mindfulness, I know, is a huge hot topic right now. And I think almost to a detriment, because I feel like people talk about mindfulness in all these ways that don't necessarily address what mindfulness actually means, Mm -hmm. Um, But especially for people who feel the anxiety physically, they feel, you know, their muscles get tense, their heart starts beating, they, you know, really feel the physical manifestation of anxiety, which can, for a lot of people, be the most debilitating part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something called um, progressive muscle relaxation. And this is something that you can YouTube it and find a video And essentially what it does is it's a guided meditation that can be anywhere from five minutes to 20 minutes and takes you through every muscle group in your body or most muscle groups in your body and has you tense them and relax them and tense them and relax them. And what people are amazed to find is when they're listening to this random voice, telling them to tense and relax specific muscles, they're focusing on what it's saying and they're not focusing on their anxiety. Yes. Um, you know, I traditionally have had clients fall asleep yes. during progressive muscle relaxation videos, and they apologize to me. My response is, you know, apologize. This is what this is supposed to do. It's supposed to help you relax mm-hmm. and get you away from your anxiety. So I think that that's a great way that people can engage in, you know, relaxation techniques when they're feeling tense or anxious.
0: I love that. That was such good advice. And I've actually done that before. I didn't know what exactly what it was called. I've heard it's of like the really body, relaxing. I've heard of like the body scans, which is similar, but like the tensing and relaxing is so it's so good. And that in exactly what you were saying is it literally makes you just focus on, you know, one part of your body or muscle. And yeah. you're really just like my, it's funny. My boyfriend always says he, he can go on his nothing box meaning like he he literally can have like think about nothing and i on the other hand and correct me if i'm wrong but women think way more thoughts in one day than men and so he always says oh i can go into my nothing box and i'm over here like i could be thinking about a million things in one second and it drives me nuts and i tried that and it literally makes you feel just like super relaxed focus on one thing and i think meditation just in general can be such a great resource it's helped me immensely on top of therapy and i i definitely want to get into a little bit of therapy um but i think just like using those resources and really and that's why they call that's why they call meditation a practice is because you really do have to practice it's not something that you can just start one day and expect the next day that, oh, I'm going to just forget all of my thoughts. Like it's really, you have to really religiously do it and you will gain the um, satisfaction of not being so overwhelmed. And, and I think it's, it takes time for sure. Um, But I think it's such a great resource to have. Um, So anxiety I know is such a heavy topic and, and therapy. And I know, um you know I think a lot of people are getting more comfortable talking about it because I think there are so many resources and people are talking about it online as silly as that sounds but I think that people truly like read something and they say oh well I'm having I'm going through similar situation or oh she has it too like even like celebrities or influencers I think a lot more people are talking about it which I love because So many people have it in the world and it's such a common, you know, struggle that people go through. And I think knowing that you're not alone is huge and knowing that you can, you know, maybe share your story with someone and they can be like, oh, wow, I never would have thought, you know, you would be in this similar situation than I am. Um, So I don't know if you want to go into a little bit of detail about therapy and kind of what it can do for people and kind of shedding some light on it.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that something I will very commonly hear whether it be with friends or family members or people who are coming to therapy for the first time is this idea of I don't feel like my problem is big enough. Yes. You know, I I've had friends say to me in the past, I wish I had a problem big enough for me to go to therapy. And as someone who, you know, has I don't even know how many clients I've seen, but you know, is in my seventh year, I guess, of seeing therapy clients, there is no reason that's too small or too silly or too dumb. And in fact, what I tell people is the time to go to therapy isn't necessarily when you have the problem and you really urgently need to fix it. It's before the problem arises, right? The progressive muscle relaxation is not something you do when your anxiety becomes debilitating. It's something you do before bed, on a regular basis so that then when your anxiety is debilitating, you have a coping strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for people who are worried about the idea of therapy, Mm -hmm. I I pose it like this. Um, The worst that happens is there's someone you can talk to who is unbiased, doesn't know the other people involved in your life and is there to listen. And I don't, by that, I don't want to sound tone deaf to the idea that a therapist does matter and therapist match does matter, right? It's not that every therapist is going to be the same. Research has very clearly shown that the therapist plays a big role in the effectiveness of therapy and the comfort of the client. But having, you know, there's so few places in life where we have the chance to speak honestly and openly and vulnerably without worrying about the repercussions, what will come of it. And I think for a lot of people it's really empower- empowering. They can tell their own narrative and they can um, you know, have a space to work on themselves and be raw and set goals. And it's, I mean, I, I really do think that everyone in the world should benefit from therapy. I'm a big advocate and have talked about this a lot um, in my work setting about the fact that I think it's important for, for high schools to teach basic therapy skills like you know we have a health class why why don't we have a mental health class
0: and yes. oh the my same, god yeah same
1: thing you know it's you know the other analogy I like to make is you people don't feel shy going to their primary care doctor for a checkup right even if there's nothing wrong so why should you feel shy going to a therapist for a mental health check-in right, right? it's the same thing Absolutely, and, and I just, I can't advocate more for, for it and, you know, urge people if, if they've ever thought, I wonder if I should try therapy, that's the time actually to follow that instinct and go.
0: Absolutely. That is such good advice. I love that. And it's so true. Cause like you were just saying, you go to a doctor for every single part of your body and not I mean, I think, I think a lot more people have become aware and maybe wanting to go to therapy more within the past couple of years, even from what I've experienced. Some of my girlfriends had never been, and now they're kind of going. And I think now is the time to just like start it. And and there's so many different resources now, like, you can do it online. If you're not comfortable going in person, like I've heard of some, just like a phone call or a video, like you can be in the comfort of your own home. There's so many different avenues you can go with it, which I think is super awesome and, and resourceful. Um, and, and I think another aspect of it is just like feeling comfortable. Like you are saying, like you were saying, you definitely should feel comfortable and, and, get what you want out of the therapist and i think i actually heard this other podcast talking about it and i thought this was a really good way to do it is almost like if you're really nervous about what you're going to get out of it like definitely like interview them like yeah meet with a couple people a couple of different therapists and kind of see what you know their style is and and what you might get out of it and like feel comfortable and and Open up a little bit about what you want, what your goals are, what you want to get out of it, so then you can kind of you can kind of cater to what you want out of it, and see if that person is a good match for you. I think that's a really good way to do it. Yeah, and
1: most therapists, whether they advertise it themselves or if you have to ask them, will give you a free fifteen-minute phone consultation just yeah. so that you can have some conversation and get a sense. And I advise people don't feel embarrassed to ask that you have every right. Yeah. Um, you know, and don't be afraid if a therapist is not a good fit to mm. to state that, right? You are in the therapy for yourself. You are not in it to preserve the therapist's feelings. And every single therapist out there has had someone say, "You know, I don't think this is a good fit." And my instinct is, I'm so proud of you for feeling like you can share that. You know, ask your current therapist if they have recommendations for someone who might suit you better. You know, most people in this field, or at least I like to hope, are there because they genuinely want to help.
0: Yes. And so
1: don't be afraid to ask them for what you need.
0: I love that. That's, that is so spot on. Um, so speaking of like anxiety and, and just relieving anxiety, I feel like we've touched on so many amazing topics. I know self-care is a big one as well. Um, that I know, I think we talked about, uh, when we were messaging so important, what are your like favorite self-care things that you like to do or that you, um, recommend to your clients?
1: So, I mean, I think, you know, the obvious ones are exercising, getting sleep, eating well. Um, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's having some kind of routine, mm. um, and having a routine that you try to stick to, but not feeling anxious when you don't stick to it. You know, I'm a pretty avid runner and I try to run X amount of miles per week. But if I don't, that's okay, right? It just, it's nice to have routine and to have goals. Other people also really like to um, to have something to look forward to each day.
0: Yeah. It sounds
1: so cheesy and it could be as simple as you know, I'm going to cook a recipe that I'm really excited to, to try tonight. Or for me, I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm a huge New York Yankees fan. And every day I'm kind of saying to myself, I'm so excited to have the Yankees game on in the background from when I'm cooking dinner or, you know, cleaning my apartment. And it's something that happens every day and that's okay. You know, just having something to look forward to. And then I think to when possible, Having having a person or people who you feel like you can go to um, and just say, I need a little support right now. You know, and I I recognize that not everyone is lucky enough to have that, but Mm -hmm. I think so many people are afraid of burdening other people. Yes. And the truth is that people feel closer when they see that you value them. And you don't have to disclose what's going on, right? It can be as simple as a text. You know, and I've done this to a a friend saying, didn't have a great day today. Can we text? Yes. Um, And that's okay, right? That's what people are there for. So I think it's having a routine, you know, getting sleep, which is so cliche, but it's Mm. so, so, so important. It's um, the number one thing that that you ask when someone is having a lot of anxiety is how much sleep are you getting? Yes, it's you know? um, so important. And you know, trying, trying not—and this is maybe counterproductive, but um, to what you would think—but trying not to have this completely positive mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this term out, there's actually a book that I'm reading right now called "Toxic Positivity." Mm. Um, and it's all about how in today's culture, everyone is so positive, you know, right. look on the bright side, it could have been so much worse. Other people have it worse than you. And the truth is that that's not helpful. No. And it can be true that other people have it worse than you, but that doesn't mean the situation you're in right now is really bad. Right. Right. And yes, you might have a lot going for you, but that doesn't mean that you're not anxious and i think that if people can learn to be a little kinder to themselves and not buy into this toxic positivity that's a really great way for them to have the grace and compassion for themselves that they would have for other people
0: wow that's powerful right there that is good oh my god that just blew my mind a little bit cuz <laughs> i think that's so true it's like positive 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 like and sometimes like i would just i would say i'm a very optimistic person, but there are times where I'm just being realistic, realistic about something. And I'm like, Hey, I don't think that this is going to work or X, Y, and Z. And some people are like, like my boyfriend, instance, he he's like, well, why don't you just think about it in a good way? But it's true. It's like, sometimes you have to be realistic with what is happening. And I think that is such a good way to put it. So I love that.
1: Yeah. And I, my attitude is very much like sometimes you have to experience the bad before you can see the good.
0: Oh, yes. One. And that's
1: that's not in the everything happens for a reason mindset. It's that you need to feel the negative emotions before right. you can feel better.
0: No, that totally makes sense. Um, so I have some listener questions for you. Yeah. So the first one is how to relieve anxiety without medications. I know we didn't really touch too much on medications, but maybe just kind of reiterating um, some things yeah. without meds.
1: So I wanna make it clear that I am in the field of clinical psychology and not psychiatry. But with that being said, you know I do work closely with psychiatrists. Mm. Um, I'm biased given the field that I'm in, but I don't necessarily think, especially with anxiety, that um, medication should be the first choice. For some people it is, and that's fine, no judgment at all. Right. Um, But I really advise that people start with therapy. And a lot of research has shown that more effective than just therapy or just medication is the combination. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I do, in my opinion, I do think it's better to start with the therapy because what you often find with people who go immediately to medication, is they attribute any improvement to the medication and not any improvement to themselves in their work and therapy. Mm. And it's very important for people to see that medication can be a crutch and a really, really great crutch, but that ultimately they are the person who is putting in the work on a daily basis. Um, you know, so I advise start trying therapy first. Um, I advise, and I've touched on, you know, all of this a little bit already, but having a list of coping strategies for when you're feeling anxious, you know, have that TV show, you know, have that season three of friends loaded onto your TV so that when you're feeling anxious, you don't have to think, what do I want to do right now? You just turn on the TV and press play, you know, have that playlist that you um, go to that immediately calms you down have that running route that this is my anxiety running route. I'm going to go on it. The familiarity can be really, really important. Um, And I think, you know, the the biggest thing of all, and I know it may sound very simple, but is allowing yourself to feel the anxiety while knowing that the anxiety is not forever. Yes. Right. We don't want to completely suppress the anxiety because suppressing anxiety or any emotion is not going to actually lead to an improved mood or an improved lifestyle, but saying this is valid. I feel the anxiety. It's not necessarily rational. And I'll deal with that afterwards can be really important because the more people pressure themselves in the moment to try to get rid of it and they feel harder on themselves, the more they feel like it's forever a problem. That's... I don't know if that addresses question fully.
0: No, that totally does. And I think that's such a that's such a good way to put it too. I, I really love that answer. Um, the next one is when in a panic attack, how to control it?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, as I have mentioned, having a routine is really important. Um, you know, listening to your body, taking deep breaths, drinking water. I, I can't state enough how important drinking water when you're having a panic attack is. Mm. Um, and, and telling yourself, like I said, that this is momentary or it might be more than a few moments, but that it's going to go away. Yes, um, You know, it's, it's a lot harder to gain control of our body without first getting control of our thoughts and telling yeah. yourself that it's okay. And that again, that the panic doesn't mean danger, that this is a faulty alarm system that's going off can be really important because then once you're Brain can get wrapped around that, then your body will start to calm down in response.
0: Definitely, and I think the breathing thing is important too. Just because yep. when I had one, it was like I was hyperventilating, and they told me to put my head in between my legs. And but the water thing is also very, very good. Good thought. Um, how to control when your heart races from anxiety? Is there anything to kind of? think about or do in that situation?
1: Um, The heart racing specifically, you know, I I would urge someone to think about what is the content of the thought that's causing the heart to race? You know, often people will say, I feel anxious. And when I ask them to describe their symptoms, they'll say my heart races, but Mm. they can't identify any cognitions that go along with that. And I urge people, not necessarily when they're feeling the heart racing, but maybe afterwards or, you know, during some time that they have free time to really try to get in touch with the thoughts behind it. Because as I mentioned with the panic, it's really hard to target. um, You know, it's like if you have an injury and you're targeting a symptom rather than the actual injury, right. It might help alleviate the symptom in the moment, but that's not going to make the injury all better. And so really trying to get in touch with what is it that I'm feeling and mm-hmm. asking yourself, why is this so important to me? You know, looking for triggers for it. So is there a specific time of day that I feel this heart racing? Is yeah. it typically when I'm alone or when I'm with people? Is it when I'm in group, you know, in trying to look for the patterns and even take notes on it? You know, I have yes. people create logs of every time I feel my heart racing, I'm just going to jot down the time of day, place, what I'm doing. And then let's look for patterns, right? Because often these aren't happening in isolated incidents.
0: That's a good That's a good tip too, just writing it down. Or like, I think um, when you're anxious too, just like writing down, okay, you know what? I'm feeling anxious right now. Jot it down. Because I think when you kind of get it out of your head and on paper, that can be a really nice thing to, for people to do is just like get it on paper and get it out of their head a little bit. So, and I, I definitely, I keep on saying this, but I think, Another coping mechanism of anxiety is journaling. And I really need to start doing that because so many people have said it, Janae. It's helped me so much. So I really I do want to start doing. That.
1: And I think too, if I can say something about that. Yeah. I have found and there's to my knowledge, there's no research on this, there might be, and I just don't know about it, that hmm. journaling does not mean taking notes in your phone. Taking notes in your phone can be really helpful for a lot of things. You know, that's where my grocery lists are, my to-do lists and all that stuff. But having your own physical journal, your own physical space, that is, this is the place to write my feelings is really important so that you're not putting all your thoughts and feelings in the same folder, the same app that you're putting everything else in your life.
0: That's a good, I like that. Like physically writing it in your own space. Love that. Awesome. Um, any other last thoughts or anything before we start our game? I think I'm ready for the game. All right. Sounds good. So this is called this or that. So you just pick between one thing or the other. So the first one is tacos or burgers. Tacos. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Love it. Pizza or pasta. Pizza. Pizza. Breakfast or dinner
1: dinner but sometimes breakfast for dinner
0: love that <laughs> um if you could only online shop or in-person shop for the rest of your life which one would you choose
1: it's a hard one <laughs> um, maybe online online That's a really hard one, actually. It is. I would have thought that that would be the one that stumped me the most.
0: (laughs) That's so funny. Um, Would you rather travel to Europe or somewhere tropical? Europe. Europe. This one might be interesting for you. Would you rather be able to read minds or the ability to fly?
1: The ability to fly. I don't want to know what's going on in most people's minds.
0: (laughs) That's so funny. I know, it would be kind of, it would be probably too overwhelming for sure, but it's an interesting thought. Um, Would you rather glow pink when you're attracted to someone or glow red when someone annoys you? Glow pink. Yeah, pink. I mean, yeah, why not? I love it. Um, Would you rather direct a music video or direct a movie? movie movie very cool would you rather have the ability to control weather so meaning like you can literally make it hot cold whenever you want it or mm-hmm. the ability to talk to animals
1: i'm gonna go control weather i mean we're we're coming out of a boston winter right now so that's what's on my mind
0: i know i hear you um Would you rather have a personal chef or personal housekeeper? Personal housekeeper. I love to cook. Oh, nice. Very cool. Would you rather live by the ocean or a cabin in the woods? Ocean. Ocean. And then the last one is sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Sunrise. Love that. Well, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here and telling all of your amazing knowledge and giving such good tips that I think my listeners are absolutely going to love. So thank you so much for being here. And I would love for you to share where everyone can connect with you.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I, um, run a mental health and well-being Instagram account called the therapist. So it is the Underscore therapist S A R A H, P I S T, um, where I post about information on how to access therapy in a way that is accessible and affordable, and I also on there run a virtual well-being book club um, where each month we read books that have something to do with well-being, um, and then we do live Q and A's with the author. So I'd love for anyone who's interested to to join me for one bu- book or a few books, and anyone can also just send me a message on the Instagram with any questions they have, and I'm happy to help as best as I can.
0: Awesome. Well, that is super helpful. Thank you so much again for being here. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I hope you all enjoyed that episode with Sarah. She was honestly such a joy to have, and literally her knowledge and education was impeccable. I loved her stories she gave such good advice so I hope you guys enjoyed that episode of course be sure to connect with her and you know where to find me at my naked mindset on all of your social networks Spotify well actually yeah you're listening to Spotify right now probably Instagram Twitter TikTok Facebook and please be sure to join my Facebook group my Naked Mindsetters, and I have merch that is live. So go check that out in my bio. And I will also, of course, link it in the show notes. I appreciate your support so, so much. I love you, bye.